since there's so much scrutiny of this case, and unlike the 9-11 case and other cases where there was a plea or something, if this case goes to trial, the world will be watching how we put this case together. So there is a lot of pressure, for sure. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today at the Attorney Lounge. So today our guest is Alok Shakravarti. He's a partner at Snell & Wilmer and co-chair of Snell's Investigations, Government Enforcement, and White Collar Protection Practice Group. Al is also a former state, federal, and international investigator, prosecutor, and trial attorney, and most notably was responsible for the prosecution and conviction of the surviving brother who was responsible for the Boston Marathon bombing. Thanks, Al, for joining us today. Great to, great to be with you, Brian. Al and I are friends. We go back a little bit. We've worked on a couple of cases together and always a pleasure working with you. And with this little new venture that I'm taking on, I appreciate you being a guinea pig for me on, on this podcast. Yeah, I was, I was so happy to do it, not only to support you, but just think it's so cool that uh, everybody can kind of create, not everybody, but a lot of people can create platforms for themselves. And I can't think of anyone who deserves one and that I would tune into more than you. And I, and I love the kind of inspiration behind it too. No, I appreciate that. The, 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 actually the inspiration behind it is comes from Snell. As a matter of fact, I think I probably told you, but the attorney lounge, we had that at, at Snell when I started and that was a really helpful place for me to go and meet attorneys and talk about, I mean, we would talk about sometimes substantive issues, but more often than not, I would just talk about where should, where should I buy a house? How do you get financing for a house? Should I be saving for my 401k? I mean, all these sort of things that when you're just a young kid getting started, you, you just don't, you know, you don't know anything. Not that I know much more today, but, but it was a helpful place to go and, and sort of talk to people and learn about their careers and how they got started and pick their brain for any sort of advice. And so that's kind of the idea behind this. I'm hopeful that a lot of um, students will listen to it and get some inspiration too in terms of pathways to a successful career in law. And so with that being the case, and I, I really want to talk about the Boston Marathon bombing case. That's yeah. fascinating, obviously. But before we get there, kind of with the theme of the show, tell us about your background and sort of how you grew up and eventually became a lawyer. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for this. I mean, I think so much of the attorney lounge is about kind of paying it forward and letting the wisdom kind of trickle down and everybody comes to life a little bit differently. I came to the law kind of by accident. I was a pre-med major and I was going to school with a lot of other pre-med majors and we're all going to make our parents proud. At least the Indians of us were going to make our parents proud. And about halfway through college, I decided I Need, I couldn't just be doing the science stuff all the time. And I was more interested in some of the policy issues and writing and uh, kind of learning about what's going on in the world. Amongst other things, just because it became relevant later in my life, there were two wars going on in the world. And I'm like, now, mm -hmm. both of them, I was kind of following and thinking about what the implications were for U.S. foreign policy considering what the differences are based on just the quirk of fate about where we are born, we live different lives, have different opportunities. And so all of those ideas kind of, kind of lived this fire of maybe going to law school. So I told my parents I would go to law school for a year 
maybe I'll get my degree and then I'll think about whether to go back to medical school. Wow. How did that go over? Well, it's, it's been about 30 years and I'm still waiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say it turned out pretty, pretty, pretty well. Well, but, you know, yeah, I don't know. You, you, I'm going to invite my dad onto the next podcast and maybe you can convince him. I'd love to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I went to law school at Emory in Atlanta and mm -hmm. what I figured out through law school, amongst other things is at least, at least in terms of the practice of law was I really enjoyed making an argument and standing up what we call the stand up experience and, and trial advocacy. Mm -hmm. And of course the, the law school encourages that, but it's not always the path that people take. Uh, obviously there's so many other areas of law. And so I took a path. I went to a firm in Wilmington, Delaware, doing their corporate chancery well, litigation practice. And it was a very prestigious job. And I didn't know anything about the law. I didn't have any family who practicing lawyers or anything. So you kind of follow where the, the system kind of pushes you. And mm -hmm. I had a taste of uh, big law firm life versus summer associate. And I realized that I wasn't getting that gratification that I I thought I could get at a law school. And it just so happens that one of the, I think he was a counsel or a partner at the firm said, if, if this isn't what you want to do, then you should, and you want to be in court, then you should go into criminal law because that's wow. what's going to get you into court. That's pretty much. So you, at that point, you're, you're at a big firm. Most, most first year associates are not getting much courtroom experience. Is that right. kind of this? Yeah. What you're, yeah. You wouldn't get, I wouldn't get uh courtroom experience, particularly in that very small chancery practice. In, in Delaware, probably for eight or nine years. Wow. Now, yeah. And, and, and there's not a lot of like arbitration and other kind of alternative dispute stuff to get that experience. So I saw a long road that medical school was more appealing than writing memos for, right. for eight years. But that's, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that like everyone else, like all the other summers and, and the, the junior associates, they were all brilliant. And I certainly had the kind of imposter syndrome of like, these people all wanted to be here. I kind of ended up here and maybe I don't want it enough. And there was some element of that self-editing of I didn't want it that much. I wanted I, the money was good to pay off law school, but the, the gratification, both of being my best, exercising my best talents and being mm -hmm. something that I could be excellent at, I, I didn't see that path clearly. And if I had, maybe I would have stick, stuck it out, but. Instead, yeah. I left and I came back to Boston where my family, where I had gone to high school and, and I joined a DA's office in Middlesex County. So that's, that's a, one of the, I mean, I applaud you for that. And I think it's a good lesson too, because it's sort of like one step back, two steps forward. I mean, knowing now, like looking back on your career, how things turned out, I obviously, I mean, I think that was a great path. You look at where you're at today, but at that point in time, that's got to be tough because I'm sure you're taking a pretty significant pay cut to, to make that move. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And it was a tough decision and a bit of a feeling of I fail, right? Like this was going to relieve a lot of pressure on me, on my parents. They wouldn't be so worried anymore about like whether their kids are going to make it in, in America. And, and I should say that they're immigrants from, from India and the, uh, the kind of giving up 
that path, which is the path that the law school and everything else wants you to go down, was a bit challenging. And I'm of mixed emotions when I talk to younger attorneys now, because I think if I had stayed maybe even two years, I probably would have been able to pay off a lot of bills. And just as a practice, guiding a life, guiding a career, that really would have helped a lot. But I was, I, I was resonating. My brain was like so many people who say, don't wait to do what it is that you want to do. Don't wait till tomorrow because you might not get that chance. So that was ultimately why I said, okay, let's, and I applied to every DA's office in Massachusetts, the AG's office. Like I, I wanted to be in a courtroom and the government agencies that I had known of were like on TV, the prosecutors. So, so I, I joined the prosecutor's office. I think there's a lot of, I mean, I, I think it's true, not just of young attorneys. I think there's a lot of older, not just attorneys, but people in all professions that sort of think about once you build that infrastructure of your early life, you get married, you get a house, you get a dog, you get some kids. Now you've got, you're carrying a lot of infrastructure and that ability to sort of make those adjustments in your career becomes harder and harder the longer you go. And so to have that vision kind of early in your career to say, this is really not my best self. This is kind of not what I envisioned. And to make that change kind of when you did was, was, I mean, I guess I just applaud you for that because that's not common that people would make that step and not choose the the path of just getting the highest salary and making the most money. And at that point too, you probably, you got student debt, you got things that you're trying to take care of. So, and you, I mean, you're pointing it out too. You got like family dynamics at play as well. And the, the respect of your peers and like, why are you, you went to Emory? Why are you working at the DA's office? <laughs> so that's fascinating that you made that, that switch. At that yeah, point I will say just on that point, it gets easier to make kind of non-traditional decisions, the more you make them. And I think when I was 18, I made that first, I had the courage to tell my parents that I'm going to double major and maybe I'm, I won't be applying to medical school this year, yeah. uh, 18, 19, whatever. So like it was relatively young. And then a couple of years later, it's maybe I'm going to go to law school and which is also, you know, took some courage, not that I'm not on a battlefield, but like in terms of making a life decision based on the best information that you have, based on where it is that you want to go and, and kind of what you think you can do that might be good for the world. I mean, and that was kind of an animating kind of principle in going yep. into the DA's office. So fast forwarding then a little bit. So you're at the DA's office and you start your career there. What, how did that progress in terms of opportunities ultimately to getting to the U.S. Attorney's Office? Yeah. So, uh, you know, in hindsight, it couldn't have been a better time to join, you know, the the folks there. Not only because there had actually been some recent high profile cases out of that office, national cases, international cases. And, and, and some of the people who I worked with when I first joined became mentors and friends, and they didn't know me from Adam. I had no ins and not really haven't been in the industry, but I, the first day I went into court, it was in Lowell District Court in Massachusetts and stood up in front of the judge, literally day to one and was able to make like a bail argument. And that was more activity that was more significant than anything I had done in law school or, or otherwise. And it was really gratifying. So I immediately caught the bug of I'm representing the people right now and I am trying to protect them and 
trying to do justice here. I don't have, I'm not trying to make money or anything. And that was, so I, I, I caught the infection at that point. And I said, did you win? Did you win? Did you win? Yeah. Well, there's a funny story about that. Uh, I, I tried that, the bail argument, I, I don't know if there's anything called winning. In fact, most at the time, and I think it's still the case that the judge is going to do whatever he or she yeah. is going, wants to do, regardless of the argument that you're going to make, because they have seen a lot more than you have as a young prosecutor. And now a lot of my friends are those judges. And, and I suspect that's what the situation is. Yeah. Um, but I will say that I also tried cases at the, at the end of the, the criminal prosecution. And I lost maybe my first dozen trials. Wow. Really? And so you talk about two steps back. And, <laughs> and I'm not sure if I had gone to a law firm like Snell Wilmer, if I lost a dozen trials, whether I would be gainfully applied. It um, might be Al Shakravarti at law. Exactly. And at, at no point did I think it's because I am doing a bad job, but mm-hmm. I could clearly be doing a better job. And so I did all sorts of self-editing. I, I changed my vocal cadence. I adopted the, the Boston accent to try to sound like more like the people there. Wow. Interesting. I did like everything. And it was like every little tweak in order to become more effective in my communication. And it was a, a, a opportunity for, for self-reflection. But what I realized was after the fact is, it really had very little to do with me. I was a messenger, but the cases that go to trial in Lowell District Court are the cases that are going to be very hard to prove. And many of those trials were bench trials where the judge had already signaled what he was going to do in the case. And yeah. so it was a function of savvy attorneys on the other side saying, this is a case that will go to trial and I'll do the best job I can for my client. And the yeah. government can't yeah. do anything about it. So, so you probably got uh, some savvy defense attorneys with a lot of experience that understand that they're they're not playing their cards in front of you, and they're saying good luck. <laughs> That's exactly right, and and they did it nicely. Like I I realized I could be very gracious to them, and I was learning every. I just wanted reps, right? Like mm-hmm. every trial, I was learning a ton, and and I thought I had a chance every trial, even though yep. I may not. Yeah. And what I learned is it wasn't about the accent. It wasn't about the clothes. It wasn't about how organized it was. It was about being kind of true to myself and just practicing the craft of being a trial lawyer, marshalling your facts. You don't get a lot of time to prep your witnesses in a, in a, in a criminal court in the, the state level. So it was a, just a formative experience for me. And I learned that there are a lot of externalities that you can't control and you should focus on what you can control and just a, a tremendous experience. And I, I thrived. Yeah. I loved going to work every day. That's amazing too. And I mean, because so you're you're really getting a chance to think on your feet. I mean, you're not yeah. you're not sitting in a in an office where you're writing briefs all day and doing depot prep and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you're really you're you're the spotlight is on you, and you got to think quickly. So it's probably fun, but at the same time, like your your learning curve has got to be just through the roof. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I and it's a bit of a it's a sad commentary about our criminal justice system that in most cities and counties around the country, there's, you know, you have junior lawyers representing the government in these cases to kind of move the case through. And there's not a lot of time to be really deliberative about what's the best thing to do in this case. What's the, what, where should the law go in this case? And I did 
even though I was in that machine, I did tend to take some extra pride in staying up late in order to write that brief and really learn what the law is because chances are nobody else in the courtroom really knew it. And mm -hmm. th that way I could use the law as an ally to make the, to try to bring justice in a situation, uh, which it, it taught me that you use the tools that you have at your disposal. And, and the law was one that was uh, unfortunately not as utilized in the, in a busy kind of uh, court. But I, I had a great experience there. Uh, after a couple of years, but two and a half years, I went to the state attorney's general's office, uh, mm -hmm. along with a lot of the people who had been at the DA's office with me for, for years. They, they also went there and there I did proactive investigations in their criminal division, which were like wiretap investigations and use of undercover operatives. And we were kind of doing like stings and in a variety of different kind of sins, there was organized crime. So any, any kind of crime that would be organized, including drug trafficking and guns and, and, and gambling and prostitution and all of that stuff we do. And it developed a real connection with the investigators as well as the attorneys that did that work because we were embedded. And it was a, I, I didn't think you could find a better job at the DA's office, but that may have been it at the time. And then 9-11 happened and all of my colleagues sprung into action, doing various things, investigating that in light of the, the I was still in Boston, in light of the Boston connection. Yep. And after all of that happened, I really felt that this balance between civil liberties and national security that there aren't many people who have an experience grounded in the Constitution, like myself, who wanted to help protect people while at the same time protect civil liberties of all of us. Yep. And so that prompted me to, to go to the FBI. And after a lengthy background check process, I, I joined the FBI's Office of General Counsel and was, wow. was practicing national security law there for a while. So was that, I mean, this is sort of in the wake of 9-11. Are you working on things related to that case at that time? Yeah, yeah basically, I was. I had the national security portfolio. They stood up a new branch, just national security law, which was terrorists and spies, essentially. So there was a few espionage matters and a lot of anti-terrorism investigations related to, at the time, Al-Qaeda. And the... Very frequently, what the F the FBI and the other intelligence agencies, like the CIA and stuff, they will look into matters that don't kind of rise to the level of a criminal prosecution. And this is all stuff that I had no idea of until I went there. And they're, they're gathering intelligence so that we know what's going on so that we can act using all the tools of national power. And in, in that process, they, the actors, the operators and the agents, they often need legal advice on what, how to do something in a way that is going to keep them legally protected and is also mindful of privacy rights and, and, and the like, but whether it be here or abroad. And that's where I really flex this muscle of, I thought I knew constitutional law, at least Fourth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, First Amendment pretty well, but then that was all tested by a whole set of like executive orders and a bunch of other body of law that went into national security law. And it was a tremendous experience. At one point, I was detailed over to the Office of Intelligence Policy and Review, which is a, a Department of Justice entity at Maine Justice. It's now called the Office of Intelligence in the National Security Division at Maine Justice. And there, what 
I practiced before the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, with these applications for wiretapping and other techniques, search warrants related to foreign intelligence gathering. In recent mm-hmm. years, that has become much more prominent, but for a long time, at least in the, in the kind of public discourse, but for a long time, nobody really knew what that was. Mm-hmm. And everybody liked it that way. And in that process, there were several terrorism cases, national terrorism cases, where I was doing the FISA applications for and, and, and getting the information, which was later ultimately used in federal criminal trials because a case turned criminal. But it was a interesting world where the national security apparatus that this country has always had after 9-11 kind of merged with the criminal apparatus. And in many ways, I think that was for the better. And it was kind of prescient for cases that I did later in my career. Uh, Ultimately, I came back to Boston. I was in Washington at that time, and I came back to Boston in about 2005 to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, where in light of this experience that I had down there and also my prosecutorial experience up in Boston, I was fortunate enough to get a position at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the National Security Division. Yeah, I kind of remember that time. I mean, I'm a corporate lawyer, so I'm not. I'm not immersed in sort of all the national security stuff, but I remember at the time, I mean, everything kind of changed for us at that time in this sort of debate over national security versus privacy rights and what does the government have the right to do and and really this strong push to sort of impede on individual liberty and privacy in the name of national security and really difficult debates at that time because the 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 feeling of we've been attacked on American soil and we need to do whatever it takes to sort of remedy this situation if you want to if you want to say it that way I mean there's some similarities I think not to get too deep into things but kind of what's going on with Israel right now and Palestine and some of the things that that go on in terms of what you what you can do and and understanding the implications of your actions in the wake of something that's that traumatic and kind of protecting constitutional rights and not going too far, that had to be sort of, that had to be weighing heavy on you and the entire department as you're sort of walking through all this stuff. Yeah, for sure it did. In fact, as it was all happening, it's there was a, a, a famous Harvard law professor who had come to my college when I was in college, now probably it's 10 years out of college when, when all that happened. But I remember this guy coming to college and talking about whether Israel should be able to torture somebody in order to get information that is going to protect it from from being attacked again by a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And it seemed so abstract when I was 18 years old, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, we weren't living, even though there were wars going on, I didn't think of that. And then fast forward to post 9-11, and then I'm at FBI headquarters or the CIA, and I'm dealing with these very same issues. Mm-hmm. And at least in relation to the U.S., the use of these... You got like waterboarding. I remember waterboarding was a big, which I had nothing to do. And so, but but that type of that that type of investigative sort of, I'm I'm sure they're coming to you saying, can we use these techniques, right? And is this going to hold up? Well, that one they did not come to me because I I would have given them a different answer. But (laughs) the but yeah, I mean Guantanamo is going on. A lot of my colleagues are going down there frequently in order to help stand up these tribunals. Which just looking at the the law does not seem very well. Thought out in ways. You're a criminal practitioner who is protecting U.S. constitutional rights. The idea of these tribunals was so foreign 
to you're you're going to deprive somebody of liberty or worse maybe based on these and so that got me starting into thinking about well what are all these alternative forums and these alternative tribunals around the world um kind of like that Harvard professor was saying when I was in college and then to your point fast forward another 20 years now and exactly that situation is is manifesting in a way that's on, on the global stage but absolutely I had to deal with thorny issues not that one particularly and an example is like a drone strike on a known terrorist in a foreign country, assuming that the rules of engagement can approve it, would that be a an appropriate response to within the U.S. legal yeah. kind of the constructs? And and often what we found is there was no law that squarely addresses that point, right? And wow. so then policymakers are often making making choices based on that. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was really exciting to deal with a lot of these kind of very tangible issues, which you're reading about in the papers every day. And I was one of thousands of people in the U.S. government who were dealing with various aspects of that. Yeah. And so then that, uh, and I'm probably skipping ahead in your career here, but, yeah, I, that's but right. I know that a lot of that then came into play, I think, right in the Boston Marathon bombing case. So you, if I recall, you you were involved almost the second that that happened, in terms of advising law enforcement in ter- of, of what you can do and how how you were start sort of tracking down who did it, what you could use, what information you could gather, and how this was going to be ultimately preserved and usable in court down the road. So. If, I, I know I skipped probably a big chunk of your career there, kind of leading to that point, but kind of walk us through that kind of the, when that happened and kind of your involvement with that. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect segue actually. Yeah. So I had just finished trying another case. It was actually a retrial of a case that I had done. I'll talk about it in a while involving the Rwandan genocide and just finished that case. And it was all consuming for several months, not years. And I had just taken some time off with my family and it was marathon Monday when I came back into the office for the first time. And mm-hmm. as you may know, and some of our listeners might know that that's that week is school vacation week. So a lot of the folks in the office were out for school vacation with their families because it was long planned. Mm-hmm. Mine were small. So I didn't, I was able to come in that week and I was catching up, sending emails out, had the, the, the marathon on in the background of the break room and mm-hmm. go in and grab some coffee. And that's when I saw the, the plumes of smoke at the marathon and immediately knew that that was a, a terrorist attack. Didn't understand the full context. I had done several terrorism cases before in the Boston area at that time, between the time I came back 2005 to 2013, it was eight years. And, and I had done several terrorism matters, mm-hmm. uh, including a high-profile case in which there were magazines, this Al-Qaeda magazine, which had bomb-making instructions. Like, this is how you make a bomb that was very similar to the bombs that exploded at, at the marathon. So all of that was going through my head when I saw that. And I had a nominal position at the, the DOJ of being the crisis management coordinator. So I felt like I had some agency to do something. 
and had been working with the FBI, particularly for the last eight years, even after I left the FBI as an employee. Hmm. And so I had some strong connections there. And immediately when I saw that, I ran over to the FBI office in Boston, which was probably half a mile away. And there I saw all my friends at the bureau and we basically had to stand up a command post and say, okay, how are we going to address this? Wow. Real quick, I want to recognize our sponsor, Array. Array handles all the details of litigation so that you can focus on winning your case. They take care of forensic collection, e-discovery, managed review, record retrieval, court reporting, legal staffing and recruiting, trial support, you name it. I'm the general counsel at Array, so I may be a little bit biased, but I was also a client before I started working there too. I've used them on various matters, and they've always delivered. If you're involved in a lawsuit, make Array your first call, and they'll help you get organized right from the beginning. You can reach out to me or visit TrustArray.com. Now, back to the pod. You just took it upon yourself. You quite literally just walked over to the FBI. Well, I didn't walk. I ran. But yes, no, and and part of it was, so I... It wasn't like self-deployment in the classic sense. I talked to my office. Look, this just happened. They need our skill set right now. We run, we work these investigations together all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we are not there, then we will not be getting the information necessary to be making the decisions that the attorney general and the, and the people in Washington are going to need. And because I had worked in Washington, I was very, very acutely aware of the, the, information flow and the demands. I had also incidentally worked on the Times Square bombing that had occurred a few years earlier and mm-hmm. was very acutely aware of the demands the DOJ was going to have on us about information. And the only way that you can get that information is to be be present and to be engaged and to, to be valued. And that's where I'm kind of jumping to the end before I get through the story. But I did feel like I got over the FBI and I see these are people who I work with every day for the last eight plus years. And the people on the phone or the other end of the classified secure video conference are people that I worked with for years prior to coming back to Boston. And the state police detectives and their brass and Ed Davis and the Boston police, these are all people that I had worked with personally for from the beginning of my career when I started the Lowell DA's office. And I realized if I am not the right person to be able to manage these relationships in what in Boston was a very it's a very controversial time of relationship building and the Whitey Bulger stuff. And a lot of there was a lot of fractures between the various agencies um, that and I had good relationships with all of them because I had produced for all of them and helped them put cases together and bring them to successful conclusions. So I did feel a little empowered by my background and and the fact that I was kind of nominally the person that is responsible for responding in a crisis. So at some times in your life, you feel like you're in the right place at the right time. And that's how I, I felt myself. Yeah, I mean, for you to be just back in the office that day, and then I'm sure, I mean, to have it on TV and to see it happen and for the adrenaline to kick in and just run into the fire and to be with people that you already had a relationship with and to jump into that is, is really fascinating. And, and <laughs> to be, like you say, to be the, the right place at the right time and not just for yourself, but for, for all of us and all the families who cared so much. I mean, that, that was, 
it's just a interesting sequence of events that you, you happen to be in that place at that time. So you get there and immediately get into like, what, what do you, what do you start doing? I mean, you're, you're at that point, you're trying to, I mean, you've got just massive amounts of information. Adrenaline is kicking in. Everybody's trying to figure out what to do. What do you, what do you, <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. So much of what a lawyer does in these things is to be the voice of reason and to take a deep breath. And so that's part of what I did in that we have been through similar situations in, in terms of how this apparatus, this, the, the, the law enforcement apparatus turns towards investigating something. And, and we do it as a team. And that team is a lot of prosecutors. I happen to be there because I, I was the one who was physically there, but there's a whole team behind me and, and soon alongside of me. And all these agents from not only the FBI, but the various other agencies just kept kind of flowing in and the command post started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so much of kind of my role was the same role that I have now as a, as a lawyer, not in the government, which is how can I best help my client get to the result that they're trying to achieve? And in this case, it was justice. It was at, at the time, public safety. Because we had terrorists on the loose. We didn't know the full extent. We didn't know whether this was a, a foreign based mission or whether it was something that was homegrown. And we had a lot of questions we had to answer. And we had certain legal tools that we had at our disposal to be able to get the information to, to figure that out. So that's how very much I viewed my role was to how do I help all of these people who will steadily increase over time, a ton of resources being devoted to this. How do I help them get what they need? And so that means providing them counsel. It means telling them what their options are in terms of what kind of legal process we might be able to prepare to get certain data, to tell them what the law says about things like, can you detain somebody and not give them the Miranda rights and talk to them, interview them if you're trying to prevent a bomb from blowing up, the public safety exception. So there are a whole host of kind of legal aspects that they needed to have definitive direction on before we can kind of go through and and first find the bad guys and then hopefully bring them to justice. And in most cases of any domestic terrorism, there hadn't been successful prosecutions through the end, often because the, there, there was no defendant or for a variety of reasons, there it didn't emerge it. After 9-11, there hadn't been a, a terrorist attack like this where we would test all the full panoply of, of tools at our disposal that I had been working in in that space since I since I joined the FBI those years ago. Yeah, I mean, your your entire career was kind of building to this moment, it sort of feels like. And, yeah. and I imagine emotions are running high, and I have to imagine there was some intense conversations with people that were saying... I don't care what the law says. Like, I mean, this was very personal attack on a city that has a lot of pride. I'm sure there were people that I'm sure it wasn't easy to be giving legal advice in that moment. Yeah, I think that it wasn't so much the team of investigators that was the, the issue that the problem is we're all human beings. and 
we all have this emotional side and you see the children are, are dead and you know that there are all these victims of the, and survivors at the hospitals who are, their lives are being dramatically changed and you don't know whether the attacks are over. And that sense of, of remorse, of empathy, of fear, uh, of anger, all of those emotions are, are human emotions that you have to deal with. And I think it is probably true that prosecutors are kind of, they're both trained to, and over time they develop a, an ability to divorce themselves personally from those while they are performing their task. But those those feelings definitely kind of sit inside. And I think uh, during that time, I was conscious of the fact that those they, those feelings existed. But I also knew that our country, frankly, without sounding too uh, ostentatious about this, but you know, what we were going to do in the next few hours, days, and longer, we're going to be scrutinized very closely by the media, by our communities. And I wanted to do the best job that I could possibly do. And I felt that I had to rise to that responsibility and rise to that occasion because that's what they demanded of us. And, and so I think most of the, the, the investigators, I think had a similar mindset where we all were conscious that all of that was true and it existed, but we had to stay cool and we had to kind of go about our business like we knew how to do and that we had done many, many times before. Yeah. And so I've heard you talk about, so as you start sort of narrowing down, what tools do you have that you're looking at cameras on streets? You're looking at what, what, what information do you have available? I seem to recall too, one of the, one of the things you talked about was not um, falsely accusing the wrong person of this, given the heated emotions and things like that. And, and that that was something that, if I recall, you were acutely aware of as well. You're trying to find all this information. You're trying to track down who the bad guys are. You're not wanting information to leak that leads you to the wrong person. Who knows what happens to that person and what alters their life if you end up with the, accusing the wrong person. Do I have that right? Is that sort of? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a whodunit. But you don't think of the Boston Marathon now, I think, as a whodunit because the evidence at the end of the day was very clear. But at the time, we didn't have all that evidence. And we knew we would get like these three prongs. We'd have videos and pictures that hopefully would show us who the bad guy was or show us the vicinity of where the bombs blew up. We knew that we would have the actual shrapnel and other kind of detritus on the street that goes back to the bombs and forensically analyzing those. We were hoping to get fingerprints or something else that would identify the person. And then we knew that there was likely to be a cell phone or, or more that would allow us to use cell phone records to help find out if somebody was using a phone at the time. And within the first, within the second day, when we saw a video, uh, sorry, still picture of uh, a person who appeared to be in the exact location where the bombs blew up all on a cell phone, then that reaffirmed our idea that the cell phone evidence is going to help us identify who that person is. And then we can be very careful and precise about how we're investigating that person as opposed to casting a broad net or sending out pictures to the to the world about who we're looking for. And I think this idea of misidentification 
was something that I was always acutely aware of because of the same reasons I joined the FBI after 9-11, which is abuses by the government or kind of a, a misidentification uh, or a false accusation could do a lot more harm to our country than just waiting a little while longer to make sure you're making a better choice. Mm-hmm. And that's not always the case. You have to deal with the circumstances. Uh, but at least going into the, that Tuesday and Wednesday, we felt confident that uh, a methodical review of the cell phone records and the, the forensic evidence, which was being analyzed at the Quantico FBI lab, uh, the two planes flights were going down every day. And they were doing just an amazing job of turning around preliminary results pretty quickly that we thought we were going to have a pretty good idea of what people look like and hopefully get their names. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, by that Thursday, so now four days later, the city is still on edge. A decision was made to, to decide whether to release the pictures because we had not yet identified who these guys were. Uh, so whether to release the photographs to the general public, so maybe somebody would see them, identify them, or to allow our investigation to keep running. And I absolutely wanted the investigation to keep running so that we wouldn't make a false identification. And also because we, we didn't want the the bad guys to know that we knew who they were or yeah. what they looked like. And so that the, the kind of uh, noose was getting uh, narrower. and uh, uh, there were a lot of very spirited discussions about that from the highest levels. And ultimately, a decision was made to release the images of the, the people we suspected to be the bombers, a person who at the time in, in, in the command post were called White Hat and Black Hat. And those images were released. The, the, the bad guys saw themselves in those images and decided to kind of go into spring into action again. Ultimately, they they needed another firearm, so they went to MIT's campus, and which is close to their home in Cambridge, and tragically assassinated Sean Collier, trying to get his gun, which because of him and the way that he had secured his firearm, they were unable to get it. And, and he saved lives in, in that moment. You realize that just doing your job well saves lives when you're in, in public service, and it's just an inspiration. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so they get that they, they can't get his gun. The, they had carjack Don Mang, Danny Mang, and then Danny Mang escapes famously at one gas station in Cambridge. He runs across the street. He places a phone call. He tells the license plate number of his, his car and be on the lookout goes out for the, the Mercedes SUV. And then a short time later in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is maybe 10 minutes away from from that place in Cambridge where uh, he escaped, the Watertown police come upon the vehicle and a shootout ensues. And there's a lot of detail to that, which I can get into, but I think time permitting and, and also it's been dramatized so much. I don't, I don't feel that I will do it justice in a podcast, but yeah. amazingly just exciting, the kind of uh, events. But once the, right, right after Sean Collier's, uh, death, just on a personal note, uh, I had been up straight running on adrenaline since the bombing and had been at the command post that whole time, all of these developments had emerged. And once the decision was made to kind of release the images, I realized, okay, now my plan of kind of doing this methodical investigation to find the bad guy, 
I've been overruled essentially. So I'm going to go get some rest. And and there were people to my left and right, some very dear friends who were, you know, could pick up the ball and, and keep going. And so I headed home. And when I get home, I get ready to put my head down. And then I got the call saying there's a shootout in Watertown. And it was variously described as having AK-47s and, and bombs and grenades and like a war zone. Um, and so I got back in the car, came right back into the office. I recall, I recall watching that live on the news. I mean, it was fascinating to see that play out in person. I, I, had you quite literally not slept? I mean, because I don't even know how that's humanly possible, but were you, were, were you going, was yeah. that the first time you had been home in, in four days yeah. or whatever? That was the first time I had been home. Yeah. And I don't, I certainly didn't, I didn't have a bed to sleep on. I probably caught a cat nap here and there in the, at the FBI, but I was just permanently there. And I will say, um, it, I mean, it, it's something you have to be worried about anytime you're in a kind of crisis situation of just overwork. And there were some agents who were like me, just you could visibly see how drained we all were. But adrenaline is an amazing thing. And when if you think about it, like your career kind of points you to certain things. And I realized that, and they did it too, that this is, this has to be our finest hour, like our forefathers, like this is our time, at least for this incident, we have to do our absolute best. And I think that's all, that's what kind of carried us through, but it was absolutely draining. Thursday night, uh, the, the, basically the, there was the worst kind of, it was a shootout. So it was Friday when the entire city was locked down because the, the, the upshot of the shootout was the older brother was, he died that night. His identification led to the identification of the other brother. And, and so there was manhunt looking for that other brother. And I think for 19 hours of manhunt and, during this whole time, I've been, and during the course of the day, I'm either at the FBI or I'm drafting legal process and then bringing it to the judge. There was one judge who issued dozens and dozens of legal process. And so I would go to her home or wherever she was at the courthouse in order to get these things signed. And it was like constantly keeping her updated on kind of what, like, where are you going to be at a certain time? Because we might need to see you again to get more legal process. And uh, at that time on Friday, we're, we're waiting for a body, hopefully, hopefully a live body that we can hopefully bring to justice in through the court system. And eventually, fast forward, he is found in the boat at Dave Hanabury's backyard. Incredible scene there. There's the fusillade of shots that go into the boat by the, the, responding police and he survives he's he's rehabilitated both on the scene the agents immediately provide first aid and then he's taken to the hospital and we make arrangements with the judge to meet at the hospital the next morning to do sorry to actually monday morning to do the to do the initial appearance and so that's the first time that where we have a, a defendant i drafted complaint to have him brought before the court and then now, finally, after that week of being up, essentially, I, I rested a little bit over the weekend and we made arrangements on kind of how we were going to deal with the initial appearance. And then we did the initial appearance. Now, all during that time, now we can talk about it because it's, it's publicized, but there were other agents who were in there talking to him mm -hmm. and trying to find out what happened. And, and we ultimately decided not to use 
those statements that he made to them in, as part of the prosecution. Were you aware of the questions at that time? Were they consulting with you or is that? No, uh, it was, yeah, it was, I was acutely aware of the fact that if they're doing a public safety interview, mm-hmm. and even though public safety is part of my mission, I want to make sure that if we're going to prosecute this guy, that there's no taint or anything else that can come from that on the prosecution. So I very deliberately avoided all that. It was so, literally agents were walking out as I was walking in to the hospital. Wow. And and at what point in this whole process do you realize or do you know the whole time you're going to be the one that's going to be in charge of this prosecution? You're going to be the one at trial or does that come up at this point? Yeah. I don't think anybody talked about it. Any of us talked about it. I suspect the, the U.S. attorney did, maybe the attorney general. I can't say, I certainly wanted to to follow this case through and feel it's the privilege of my career to be able to follow it through. But the, those decisions were not going to be made by me at the time on, on the in the location. I, I would say it reminds me how important it is and how much influence, like, the U.S. attorney had and the first assistant and my own supervisor, the head of the National Security Unit, who had worked with me for years on all these other cases, that when you do a good job, then hopefully they build trust so that they will trust you with it. And they saw that I was probably the right person at the right time, at least for that week. And I had tried these cases. I had tried the only other terrorism case in, in this vein in in. Massachusetts. So I thought objectively I was the right person, but you never know who, what the staffing situation is going to be like, whether it be in a government agency or in, in, in the private sector. And so that's where you realize that these, the, the people who are your mentors and your friends really have an incredible influence on your career path and what opportunities you get to do. And now I'm very aware of that as I give work to associates or other partners that I want to set them up for success and success for the clients. But at the same time, I'm aware of how much influence I'm having on them just by virtue of the work that I'm giving them. But now there's a whole nother pressure on you. You're now responsible for trying this case. And so I think we will probably need another episode to walk through like just the entire trial process. But then that's got to be, I mean, you've gone through this entire investigation period. You're hardly sleeping. You, you've got an unbelievable amount of pressure on you. Now you turn around, like you say, I mean, it's basically straight into the prosecution phase of this thing. And that's got to weigh on you pretty heavily as well. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely an element of, I don't want to screw up. Right. And when we, when it was a whodunit, it's hard. The way, only way you screw up is you don't figure out who it is. Mm-hmm. So. Like you could take gambles in different ways in order to try to find the guy as we did with the pictures. But ultimately we found the the defendant and, and then by that time, the evidence was much stronger that we have the right guy. So the pressure is, I think, creator that we, we, we need to bring this to justice. And the only way that we, we, we will likely be derailed from that is if we screw up. Right. If there's something about our legal system that we don't honor, and since there's so much scrutiny of this case, and unlike the 9-11 case and other cases where there was a plea or something, if this case goes to trial, the world will be watching how we put this case together. So there is a lot of pressure for sure. But 
sure, I had responsibility for this case, but others did as well. And yeah. the beauty of working on big things, significant things is you don't do it alone. There's nobody who does any of this stuff alone. And, and I was certainly immersed and my whole life was revolving around the case, but I had several people on my side to the left and right who were equally committed and were brilliant and the agents that I worked with as well. And it was really moving the aircraft carrier in a direction where we're all kind of rowing in the same directions, essentially. Yeah. And as we kind of run out of time here, so yeah. I want to, like I say, I, I, I'm, I could ask you a million questions about the trial itself. Here's a silly one I got for you. Yeah. How, how, I think it's fascinating to look at the, the, the drawings that they do in the courtroom. Yeah. What, what did you think of that? Like what you're now a national figure. You, they're doing courtroom drawings of you. I mean, you got to be on, I mean, national news constantly interviews, like all this sort of stuff, like your whole life, like is flipped upside down at this point. What, what is that like yeah, happening I mean, through an event like that? So, yeah, the, the the drawings were like that's when I felt like I had made it as a lawyer, <laughs> and it it's completely uh, has no relation to being a good lawyer. But I'm like, if I'm you know, being memorialized in, a, in crayons or charcoal, or then it must be important. I realized that it's all a function of federal court and not having cameras in the courtroom, and the drawings don't really have to reflect anything about reality. Mm-hmm. And as we see recently in, in high profile, high profile cases where these drawings are often kind of distorted images of people. Yeah. And, but it was the idea of attention to what I was doing and, and when I'm getting a coffee and they're taking pictures of you like that, I realized that they're, we're in a different time now where the, the story is not always the substance of what's happening in the courtroom, but it's all of this kind of drama around the trying to humanize these people to be able to be voyeuristic in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's healthy for our criminal justice system, our judicial process, or for our society generally. And so I tried to kind of block that out. And so there's there many smart lawyers have told me over the years that the job of the lawyer is not to be the star of the show. Yep. Yep. And so. That's how I view, like our job was to present evidence and we tried really hard to do that in a way that would be smart, efficient, convey what we're trying to do, make the system look good, make, make it look like everybody, that the defense is being able to do their job and, and do a vigorous cross-examination. Uh, but to show that our, the, the way that the U.S. justice system works can bring justice even to a notorious person who is presumed innocent until he's found guilty and, and ultimately given a punishment. Yep. So we, we took a lot of pride in, in doing that and ultimately got the right result. And and tell me now too, like one of the interesting anecdotes that you talked about is this is all done. You you lead this trial, you prosecute him, convict him, you go through the sentencing phase and then you end up meeting him in prison. Is, is that, am I remembering this correctly? And you had a decision to make on whether to to speak with him at this point. Can, can you remind me of that story? Yeah, just the, for a variety of reasons, which I can't go into all the details. I was at a prison where he was, and he 
saw me walking by and we had just spent six months together uh, every day right across the table from each other or right next to each other and and I had met most of his friends in that he's ever had in, in the United States mm-hmm. and and his teachers and a lot of people in his circle and I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of who he was outside of just what the evidence of the crime was um, to the extent that that was relevant. And I saw his antics in court every day, whether he was, whether there was a jury there or not. And when you're in the physical proximity of somebody, you, you, you feel like you get a sense of them just kind of through nonverbal communication. Not that I ever wanted to or tried to speak with him uh, at any point, but the case was on appeal when I saw him. He saw me and he, he did motion over to me to, and invited me in to, to, to speak with him. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where there is this kind of, the, this kind of voyeuristic influencer world, social media world where wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't this be a great Netflix special to show the, the conversation between an accused and the accuser or a prosecutor and defendant or what have you? And, I'm copywriting that idea in case Netflix tries to take that. But I have ethical duties not to communicate with somebody who at the time was still represented by counsel for purposes of the appeal in in a matter where the government was still representing. So I ultimately kind of chose not to do that. But the the idea of having a candid conversation is is one which maybe in other countries and other legal systems they would do. And, and maybe would do to the, to the, at the cost of an open public trial, mm-hmm. but that's not our way. And so far, I think that has worked well, particularly because I think it would be unjust to give him a platform to do something after causing so much pain to so many people and, and not being able to do it the right way in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I respect you for doing that. And that's, that, that had to be sort of tough with, Personally, the fascination with doing it, but but kind of keeping your head in that moment and and not doing that. We're running up against time here. I know you were not portrayed in the movie. Real quick, you you, you were cons- you consulted on the movie, but you were not in the movie. Was that by design? The 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 Mark Wahlberg movie. I did talk to Mark Wahlberg and the and Peter Berg. They they told me that this movie is not about the the lawyers it's about the first responders and they created this kind of what i will say and maybe this will change i have never watched the movie so mm. maybe i will at some point but i am that i have done conversations like this where i do think it's important that people know different aspects of what happened but as you as we have learned today it takes a long time to go through in granular detail a lot of what happened so i kind of have to bite off chunks at a time there's there's so much meat on the bone there i mean to talk about and it's a fascinating case i mean congratulations to you and the way that it was handled with such professionalism to come to the conclusion that it did which we all wanted to see and to preserve that from the very beginning to be have your i mean just your career leading up to that that moment in time you literally run over to the fbi and see this thing all the way through and it's just an amazing story and we could talk about it for hours but i know we need to to wrap it up. You have a successful practice today at Snell and Wilmer. And so for anybody that's interested in getting in touch with you, where can they, where can they get in touch with you at? Yeah. So I left the government not long after this 
this case and the appeal, the first set of appeals, and 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 moved out west and found the wonderful people of Snell Wilmer, just a great firm, because which like the other places I had worked, it was really good work, but really great people to do it with, and so that has kind of been this guiding principle. And and I'm back in Boston now and doing a lot of kind of white collar work, investigations for companies and helping individuals who might be in, involved with a governmental investigation, whether it be SEC or DOJ or one of these things. And so I'm available at Snow Wilmer, or you just, you can Google me and the search engine optimization will, will find me. I should also add, I also do cybersecurity and, and, and data privacy, which is was component of my investigative practice was when I was with the government and at the FBI. And so now I'm doing that to help private clients. Uh, yeah. And you're, and you're, you have some practice in crypto as well, which I would say is fascinating to me too. I'd love to talk to you about that. I mean, talk about an area of law kind of like earlier in your career, that's not really well developed. We could talk about that for an hour as well. Yeah. Well, and maybe we will. I, I, I very much enjoy this, the, the kind of, this the, the the challenges with not having clarity as to which way to go, and it does remind me a lot of what the national security directives were for the government. Now the kind of lack of regulation or the increasing regulation by by kind of in, by ad hoc is yep. is kind of it's a brave new world. I I did have some recent dealings in the in the Sam Bankman Freed matter. I had a, a client who was potential witness in that case. And dealt with the Southern District of New York, and I'm still dealing with FTX for another client. And it's interesting to see how the private sector, like so much of our life now, it's not government that is controlling these institutions or these businesses. It's this is all private sector, and so even the private sector and the lawyers and the the the, the trustees. These are all private sector folks who are controlling the direction of how FDX is kind of rebuilding in the bankruptcy process. Um, and that's, it's just really interesting how we've outsourced a lot of what we think are basic fundamental kind of protections for people to the private sector, like social media companies and big tech. And that is true in the crypto world as well. And so we hope that actions like this will deter other people from kind of flaunting the rules and doing whatever they want and trying to create a, a more aggressive standard than, than protects people. Yeah, you tend to get, yeah, I mean, the, the regulation and, and everything is behind the, the advancement of technology and, and and it has a, it just takes time to catch up. And I think, like I said, we could talk about it. I, I'm fascinated by that. And I think it's sort of the new frontier of where we're headed and covers so many different areas of the law. So yeah, we'll, we'll save it for another time. I'll let you get on your I'm way. Sorry we didn't get through as much as we wanted to today, but the it's, you know, I could talk to you for a long time, Brian. So I know. we've uh, had lots of long conversations. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Al, for being on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you're interested in further episodes, please uh, subscribe to the Attorney Lounge podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank Array again for sponsoring this podcast today and making it possible. And for more information on them, visit trustarray.com. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Attorney Lounge. Thank you, Al. Thank you.